Welcome to episode 300 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are still proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Jesse, this is like the most awkward transition Hey, ever. brother. Hey, brother. <laughs> so uh, as you uh, may remember uh, from the conversation that Jesse and I recorded just a few minutes ago that you were listening to a week ago, uh, Jesse and I are still at the beach. We haven't left our seats. Uh, and we are uh, kind of finishing the conversation around uh, the role of Christ as the mediator. And we're starting to move into the offices of Christ. And we're going to talk about what it means for Christ to be a prophet. So if it, if it feels a little weird because the format's a little different, it's because it is a little weird because the format's different. So now that we've got that out of the way, we can just get started. All those things are absolutely true. So this is the first of three parts, right? Yes. Where we're going to go through the offices of Christ, which are always worth talking about. So let's talk about prophet yes. and prophets. Yes. Maybe we should start with just what a prophet is. Just what a prophet is. So so let's start with the question from the catechism, because I think actually that defines for us by Christ as sort of the archetypical, prototypical prophet. Um, that really defines for us what a, what a prophet, lowercase p, is. So question 44, uh, 43 of the Westminster Larger Catechism says, How doth Christ execute the office of a prophet? And it says, Christ executeth the office of a prophet in his revealing to the church in all ages by his spirit and word, in diverse ways of administration, the whole will of God, in all things concerning their edification and salvation. And so in the Old Testament, you know, we might talk about prophets. There's kind of the classic... Well, prophecy is both foretelling and forthtelling, right? So it's it's not just predicting the future. It's also speaking divine words about the present. Um, that's one element of it. Um, you know, we talk about maybe like the prophetic ministry of the, the pastorate in the New Testament era, that it's not, not a thus saith the Lord prophet in the same way, but it's a prophetic ministry and that it's applying the word to the church. But all of that, even, even the words of judgment in the Old Testament serve for God to reveal his will for salvation for his elect. Um, so this definition is a thoroughgoing reform definition. It talks about the church in all ages. So we're talking about from the time of the garden, Adam in the garden was the beginning of the church that carries all through, um, through the old Testament era into the new Testament era, into the church age, into the eschaton, right? It's, it's one large church that carries through the ages. And so Christ as prophet in the various stages, and we could get into those if we have time, who knows, in the various sort of phases of the church operates as the capital P prophet throughout all of those ages in different ways. And all of the lowercase P prophets serve kind of as almost like under shepherds, under prophets hmm. um, for the capital P prophet. So we use the example that you heard last week. That was like 20 minutes ago for us. Time <laughs> travels a, a lovely thing. Um, we, we use the example that when the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, and he communicated a word to Isaiah that Isaiah then communicated to the people. That was Christ or the son operating in the Old Testament in his pre-incarnate state, operating as a prophet by revealing his word, by his word and his spirit to Isaiah, the will of, will of God for the salvation of the church, which then Isaiah then communicated to the church. Mm -hmm. So sometimes that's judgments. The will of God for the salvation of the church is the judgment of the church's enemies. 
right? The judgment of those who are false professors is part of the salvation of the church in the long run. So we have to understand that it's not the will of God for the salvation of the elect is not just not just the the gospel simpliciter, right? It's it's everything that God has revealed, particularly in the scripture. Everything that God has revealed is about the will of God for the salvation of the elect in the church. And once we get that in place, we can then start to talk about, all right, what about specific things? How does Christ operate as a prophet of the New Testament and, and those kinds of elements? So what does that apply about different streams of alleged Christianity would have their own prophets or modern prophets? Yeah, well, I mean, if you're talking about like the cultic forms, um, anytime you have a group of um, professing Christians, people who identify as part of the Christian church, but then want to say that Jesus Christ is not the ultimate prophet of the church, um, then you end up undermining that, right? So whether that is, um, I mean, maybe I'm going to ruffle a few feathers, but I don't think anybody's going to be upset. Uh, whether that's the Pope in Rome who claims to be claims to be the ongoing incarnation of Christ, right. that the church broadly, but the Pope specifically, is the ongoing incarnation of Christ in a real concrete sense, not sort of this metaphorical, organic sense that Paul uses, but the actual ongoing incarnation of Christ on earth. Well, that is saying, like, now he has the authority to define dogma. He has the authority to reveal the will of God for the salvation of the elect in a way that the rest, that the Christ didn't, that the Bible doesn't. Whether that's the will of God for the salvation of the church by saying, this is what you must do to be saved. These are the, these are the penances you must pro provide in order to be saved. These are the indulgences that you can purchase. That's, that's one form of it. Or whether you're talking about more traditional kind of, kind of cultic movements like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, you know, oneness Pentecostalism, although oneness, oneness Pentecostalism is a different animal. Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses both claim that there's a central, um, a central prophet, right? In Mormonism, it's explicitly a prophet. Jehovah's Witness, I don't think that he called himself a prophet, but he's engaged in a prophetic work of receiving new revelation from God. They have now supplanted and usurped the true prophet of the church, which is Jesus Christ. Um, you could get into a discussion of Islam. It would break on similar lines um, where, you know, Muhammad is considered the prophet supreme, even though they would acknowledge Christ as a prophet. Um, they would say that Muhammad brings additional revelation that sort of constitutes the people of God. It would obviously they wouldn't call wouldn't call the body of Muslims a church, but constitutes the people of God. Um, all of those movements usurp the true prophet of the church. And so, like all good theology, if we are properly observing Christ's mediatorial office in sort of this sub-office of prophet, we are also protecting the church, protecting ourselves from some of these other errors. It's another one of those bits of data that can fit into your theological system to help you detect these errors. Does this group that is telling me something believe that they have new prophecy that was not delivered by Jesus Christ? Right? So like one is Pentecostals, they don't have like a central prophet but they have an extreme Pentecostalism that would affirm multiple new prophets, that there's new revelation happening on a regular basis. Um, you know, someone like uh, someone like T.D. Jakes falls in that category. Or even in, in um, groups that might have a more or less orthodox Christology and Trinitarianism, like classic Pentecostalism, they would still be holding some of these views where they've supplanted Christ as the prophet of the church by saying there's this ongoing revelation that is being delivered in a manner and a means that's not consistent with what Christ in the Bible said he would deliver his word through, right? He says he's going to deliver his, he's going to deliver his word. He's going to lead the apostles into all truth. Well, we traditionally, the church has understood 
that movement of delivering the church or, or leading the church in all truth as the communication of scripture. It's not this sort of like ethereal, the prophets or the apostles are going to understand the truth in a mental sense. It's that Christ is going to give the scriptures to the church through the apostles. And that's how he leads the church into all truth. So when you supplant Christ as the prophet and you have a theology that does that, you recognize now that you're moving outside of the Christian church. And where is that line? So obviously we talked about somebody filling the role of prophet, but what about prophecy as yeah. we understand it? And where does that get also hairy with what you're saying? Well, I mean, this is a this is a total like side topic, but it is connected is the church um, by and large throughout most of her history has actually been cessationist in nature. So even as early as, you know, the first two or three centuries, groups that considered themselves to have additional revelation that was coming outside of the apostolic witness, which we can quibble with the, the papists a little bit about what the apostolic witness consists right. of and how it was delivered. But the church as a whole recognized that people who were saying there was new revelation being given outside of the testimony of the apostles always recognized that that was an error. And so that that's the fundamental error of these kind of continuationist or, or charismatic groups is that revelation didn't end with the apostles. It's, it, revelation is extra apostolic. It's outside of the apostolic testimony. So I think, you know, the, the office of prophet, um, you know, the Bible talks about in uh, Ephesians something, something, something. Um, <laughs> I think it's towards the back half. I want to say it's chapter five somewhere, but I could be wrong. That the church is built on the cornerstone of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Well, there's a reason that the apostles and the prophets are connected to each other in that passage. Because the, the apostolic ministry is the continuation of the prophetic ministry of the Old Testament. And Christ is operating as the prophet in both of those. And then the Old Testament communicates to the prophets in sort of mystery. And in the New Testament, he communicates to the apostles in a more concrete, revealed sense. And then that is what is revealed to the church through those two ministries. So the apostolic ministry is a prophetic ministry. Mm -hmm. And the prophetic ministry of the Old Testament right. is an apostolic ministry, right? Apostle is literally someone who is sent. Well, all of the prophets were sent by God. Almost all of the prophets have an ordination sequence in the beginning where they're called by God, they're given a task, they're given a mission, and they're usually sent to a group of people. So those two offices go hand in hand. And then the apostolic ministry, the scriptures, the product of those two ministries is assembled and handed, basically handed off to the pastors of the church, the elders of the church, who continue that prophetic ministry in kind of a different register. So this, this understanding that Christ in the Old Testament in a diverse, diverse manner and means, uh, in the New Testament, in the apostolic age, in a still diverse but less diverse manner and means, and then now in the scriptures in a not diverse manner and means, right? That's just the movement in Hebrews 1. It's handed off to the church in the office of elder. And now the prophetic ministry of the church is not one of ongoing new revelation, contra Wayne Grudem, contra Matt Chandler, contra John Piper, like names that we would look at and by and large would respect. The prophetic ministry of the church, the way that Christ as the prophet, capital P prophet, is operative in the church is no longer through ongoing revelation. He's no longer revealing to us by his word and spirit in a, a new sense anything. He's revealed all that he needs right. to reveal to us by his word and spirit in the prophets and the apostles and, and you know, in scripture aided in scripture. That's in uh, chapter 1-1 of the Westminster Confession. 
that he communicated all of that into writing because it's a more preservable and it's a better standard and it's it's for the edification of the church. So when you have a group or a person who is is still advocating that the prophetic ministry of the church somehow exists outside of the exposition of scripture, which is precisely what what Wayne Grudem and John Piper argue for, even though they would say it's different than the Old Testament prophetic church, they don't take it the direction that the Bible does. They don't take it the direction that the historical church has, where that prophetic ministry, even the Roman Catholic Church, as much as they get it wrong, they still believe that the prophetic ministry, it continues into the apostolic ministry, and the apostolic ministry is handed over to the pastors of the church. That's what a priest is. It's a pastor of the church. So even though they get it wrong in terms of how the apostolic succession works and, and what the abilities of that church is, they still get it right that, that that apostolic prophetic ministry still rests with the pastors of the church, the elders of the church. When you're outside of that, you really have moved beyond what the scriptures teach. You move beyond what the church has taught. And it's that is not something that would move you beyond Christian orthodoxy you know, in, a, in a straightforward sense. This is not what puts Wayne Grudem outside of Christian orthodoxy. His Trinitarian views would be what does that, if that's certainly the case. Um, but that's why it's important, is because this connects. This now connects the church to Jesus Christ. And again, even though Rome gets it wrong, the idea that the Christ that the church is the ongoing presence of Christ on earth, the ongoing prophetic presence of Christ on earth in the body of Christ, right? That's how Paul uses those metaphors. The body of Christ metaphors or analogies or, or whatever we want to call them, I think they're more than a metaphor. They're not just straight symbolism, but they're also not concrete the way Rome does. That symbolism is communicating that whatever authority that the church has, it's authority that's given to her organically because Christ is the head of that body. Well, now if that body is coming up with new knowledge, right? What, think about a normal body. If someone came to you and said, like, my arm came up with this great insight the other day, we would look at them like they're a little bit crazy because your arm doesn't have the capacity to come up with new insight. It does. It just doesn't. That's not what an arm does. Well, likewise, you know, the head. There's only one head of the church, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So this prophetic office and ministry of Jesus carrying through the church. Now in the church age and the New Testament age, we've now just got, I mean, we just went through the whole scope of the different phases of Christ's prophetic ministry. You know, he's communicating by his word and spirit to Adam in the garden prior to the incarnation, right? Who do we think it is that told Adam he shouldn't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, that was the Lord Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate form. Who was it that came in the wind of the day or in the spirit of the day to bring judgment and salvation a message of salvation mm -hmm. for the people um, who was it that you know told the israelites that they should put blood on the doors to protect them from the avenging you know the avenging spirit or the angel of death however you translate it well it's jesus the same jesus who destroyed the people in the desert according to jude so this prophetic ministry moves and is, is seen in diverse ways and diverse manners throughout the whole of biblical history and now we come to the church age and that's all been written down for us and christ is still revealing to us now through the office of the pastorate, through the preaching of the word, particularly on the Lord's day, to a lesser degree, I think in, in other venues, like a podcast, like a, a Bible study, you know, a layperson's right. Bible study. That's not the prophetic ministry of the church, capital M, but it is still the Christ operating prophetically through the scriptures. And insofar as they're properly understood and properly taught, there's still a prophetic voice that speaks in that. When I, um, I have never engaged in like abortion ministry or anything like that. But when uh, Jeff Durbin goes to an abortion clinic, 
uh, which, praise God, there are a lot less of those places for people to go now. That's awesome. But when someone goes to one of those clinics or when they confront a coworker who is um, stealing from the company and they bring scripture to bear on that, or when they confront a, Christ, a Christian brother or encourage a Christian brother or sister who's struggling with sin, when they bring the scriptures to bear into that situation, that is the voice of Christ speaking prophetically through that believer in the scripture into that situation. So what what people like Wayne Grudem or Matt Chandler, John Piper, or others in that camp, what they give with one hand, they take away with another, right? They're trying to give back to the church the ability for the spirit to move through God's people and speak into specific situations. But what they've done is they've taken the prophetic ministry of Christ out of the scriptures and tried to put it into the hands of the people. Well, that's the wrong place for it, right? What what the reform position and the cessationist position has always done is takes that prophetic voice and keeps it where it is in the scriptures and then applies that prophetic voice by applying the scriptures to whatever the situation is. Um, again, that's formally happening only on, on you know, through the prophetic ordained ministry of, of lawfully ordained qualified men in the pastorate, but it's happening in an informal sense every day by Christians who are applying and rightly applying scriptures to themselves and to others. Right. And that's why I wanted to pose that question because I think it's valuable for people to think about the office and ministry of Christ as the prophet to how that outworks into right. the way the church discerns what the scripture says yeah. and whether or not they input or import, I guess, outside the scriptures, a new prophetic word. Yeah. What it does is it invalidates the prophecy and the prophet of Christ himself. Right. So let's talk about Christ then. Yeah. So how does Christ embody uniquely and particularly these different categories of prophet away from all the other prophets? Yeah. So when we, you know, when we think of the differences between Christ as a prophet and someone like Isaiah, um, just the, the most obvious is the word of the Lord comes to Isaiah and that's how Isaiah receives his prophecy or Daniel or Elijah, Ezekiel, whoever. Well, the word of the Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. So the, 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 prophecy himself you could actually you could actually although i wouldn't do this without some qualifications you could actually talk about jesus christ as the prophecy of god not just the mm -hmm. prophet of god but the very prophecy of god because although we think of christ revealing the word you know the will of god for the salvation of the elect by his word and spirit we think about that in sort of like the the idea that the word and spirit are are these external means from christ that he uses to do that but when we think about that, we back that up into sort of this Trinitarian register. Christ is the will of God for salvation for the church. He's also the revelation of God for right. the salvation of the church. And the spirit of God only comes to the church by means of what Christ has accomplished. So, so we can back up even a little bit and say, well, a prophet receives prophecy and then gives that away, communicates that. He's a vehicle for that. He's a, a, an instrument that that prophecy flows through. Um, right, the scriptures were written when men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit and then committed to writing what they were given or spoke according to what they were given. Well, the Spirit, the Spirit and the Son's movement is one movement. Right, we get back into inseparable operations. The revelation of God into the into the world is the coming of the Messiah in shadow in the Old Testament, in in person in the New Testament, and now by His Spirit in the post. New Testament era, post-resurrection, post-ascension. Um, but Christ is the very prophecy of God. And so his function as a prophet is a outworking of that. Uh, ontological might not be the right word, but that's kind of what I'm coming up with. That, that ontological reality 
that the revelation of God is simply is the Son. The Father makes himself known outside of the Trinity by the Son completely. That's the whole, the whole revelation is the Son. You can get into trouble by taking that too far and not recognizing the, the mode and manner of how that's done, but that's the reality. So when Andy Stanley says, I don't believe in Jesus because of what the Bible tells me, but because of the resurrection, well, the Bible is what tells you about the resurrection. You wouldn't know about the resurrection apart from the Bible. Um, that's still, he has a kernel of truth there, though, right? The reason the Bible is valid and something worth studying and has authority is not because it's some, you know, some specific book. It's because it's the word of Jesus Christ. It's the word of God. The nature of scripture as the revelation of God originating from the son, right? It's the word of the father communicated through the son and then inspired by the Holy Spirit or actualized into creation by the Holy Spirit. That's that's what we're talking about. So his role as prophet is not is not one of something that is attached to his person. Um, although in his incarnation, just like we talked about last time, there's elements of his incarnate ministry that we attach to his humanity that are, are according to or as a function of his humanity. Um, it's his person that's accomplishing that, but it's a function of his humanity. So the verbal preaching of the gospel in, in the gospels, that's a, that's attached to his humanity, right? This wasn't a booming voice from heaven. It was a, it was focal folds with air passing by. And it was all the normal mechanisms of human speech. Um, but there is also this element of Christ as prophet that is attached to his person in divinity too. He is the revelation of God. He is that, um, Again, ontological is not the right word because then we're getting into sort of these EFS overtones and, and roles being fundamental to ontology, and that's not where we want to go. Um, but it, it is, this is part of where we get to mystery, right? There is an element almost of like divine simplicity that we're talking about here, where the role of the sun, to say sun, I guess in a sense in this way, we've got another helicopter plane coming by, to say sun in this sense, when we talk about the eternal sonship of, of Christ, you could almost say, since he's the eternal word, he is the eternal revelation of, of God, of the Father. Now, who is he revealing the Father to in eternity past? Well, this is that's you know, that's where we get into mystery and our language starts to fail us and human language frailties cause us to say things that probably are not correct and proper. But there's a kernel of truth in that. That even in eternity past, ad intra the son was still the word of the father. The father was never without his word. The father was never without his self-disclosure in the son. Um, and again, I don't know who he was self-disclosing himself to, but that that's kind of where the theology has to take us. And it's fundamental because of everything we just said about the role of the prophetic discernment and proclamation of the church. If the prophecy of God is the Lord Jesus Christ, then that's why Paul tells us that it's the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified that we should preach and boast in and no other, no other thing no other gospel because to go to another gospel is to go to another another what another revelation another god another christ right. so all of this is interwoven in ways that i don't i just don't think we've ever when i say we i mean like the 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 reformed becoming more confessional used to be new calvinist reformed pub acolyte kind of group we've never really fully unpacked this. We've never really understood that. I mean, some of this stuff, just full transparency, some of this stuff I've been working out for the last 10 years. And some of this stuff I'm working out in real time right now over this podcast. Um, so I think this is theology that's incredibly fruitful and it's right here in our confessions, right? right? We, we need to just look at these statements because they give us, 
they give us these like trajectories. That's what a good catechism question is supposed to do. It gives you an answer to a question, but that answer launches you down a pathway of inquiry into the theology that then drives you back to the scriptures. It drives you back to the historic documents of the church. It drives you to your pastor and to the preaching on the Lord's day, to the contemporary testimony of the church. It drives you those directions with a proper arrow. It's kind of like a, like a compass. We've been using this metaphor, but the, the catechism question points you towards true north. And as you walk to, towards true north, you're going to get to, you know, if you point a compass at true north and you follow and you always follow, you're going to get to what actually is north, like north with a capital N. You're going to get there eventually, on earth at least. Um, with the catechism question, you're going to get there eventually to the final answer, but you're also going to run into a lot of things and learn along the way. So I, I just think that reflecting on these questions by means of the catechisms and reflecting on these elements of theology by means of the catechisms really is such a productive, fruitful thing. And this section of the catechism, man, with, with the talking about prof, the mediatorial offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king, talking about the, uh, the reasons that the mediator had to be both God and man. We're going to get into things about the humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. Um, those, though, that complex of Christological topics in the larger catechism, it's just, it just moves you to praise. It moves you to doxology through your study and I just can't commend it enough. It really is phenomenal. So we've already spoken about at length about the nature, character of Christ, about unity in Christ. And so maybe the obvious question, but the one that's still worth asking is, why did Jesus have to be prophet? Is sure. this just a matter of God saying, I need to fulfill what all the other prophets failed to accomplish? Was this just a matter of God being consistent or is there something special in this office that God gives where he says, Jesus, you must be prophet? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think on one level, it, it's the question is almost backwards, right? It I think it's almost more accurate to say Christ is prophet, and so if Christ was going to be incarnate, right? So theologically, there's different ways to work this out, but the Reformed tradition as a whole has said that God didn't have to create and didn't have to save sinners right. but once he committed himself to creating and to saving sinners there was only one course of action that could accomplish that in the world that he created so god could have created a different world where redemption may maybe could have happened a different way but in the world he deigned to deigned to create this is the way redemption had to happen and since the only way redemption could happen is for the second person of the trinity to assume a human nature and redeem it well that second person like we said ontologically is prophecy he is the prophet that's a fundamental element of his of his personhood as the son as the word of god so now we have to say okay so him being prophet is a necessary reality of the incarnation well all of the prophets leading up to him then become pointers it, they're almost like the trailer to the movie um, although this doesn't play out now because movie studios release trailers that have stuff in them that never happened in the movie but it used to be that the trailer actually told you what was going to happen in the movie but not completely so you would know you wanted to go see a movie because of what the trailer revealed. And then the trailers became more robust. The information in the trailer became clarified and became more robust. It became more satisfying. Sometimes um, sometimes you could remember a part of the trailer and actually like delight in that thing more because now you see the context that it came into in the broader movie. That happens with Marvel movies, although they do they do change a lot about what the movie ends up being from the trailer they throw you off in the trailer but there are multiple times when i went and saw infinity wars and endgame which were the last really really big releases 
that I remember looking back at the trailer and thinking, oh, that's what the trailer was saying. That's the, that was the plot twist the trailer was hinting at. Well, that's what happens with the prophets. We, look, we can look at Isaiah and we can look at the suffering servant. And when you, you know, an Old Testament Jew reading that could have come to the conclusion and should have come to the conclusion. And many did come to the conclusion that God himself was going to come into the world and take care of sin and be counted among the transgressors and was going to inherit a, inherit a, you know, a lot with the strong and was going to be crucified and was going to be pierced for transgressions. They could and did come to that conclusion or Psalm 22 is another example um, or Genesis 3.15 for that matter, right? Mm-hmm. What does it mean that the, the serpent crusher is going to be bruised on the heel or cr- you know, crushed on the heel? Well, we can we can get a picture of what that means, but then all of a sudden the prophet, the capital P prophet comes and all of those prophecies become clearer and more vibrant. They're, they become more um, delightful because of the context they're put in. So I think the question is sort of backwards, but also it's also still a good question is that the the human prophets, um, although it was the word of God being revealed through them, they're still human prophets. They, they can't reveal the word, the will of God for salvation fully because they're not, they're not the revelation of God. Their person is always distinct from their prophecy. Their office is always distinct from the, the message that they receive and then give. With Christ, that message that he receives is not external to him. It's internal to him. It's fundamental to who he is. And so the prophets had to be fulfilled. Um, Matthew does this a lot. He talks about this was this occurred to be to fulfill what was written in the book of Hosea, right? The the flight into Egypt and then the return. Um, in the original context, that's talking about something totally different. It doesn't even appear to be a prophecy about the Christ. It's actually something happening in the past. It's referring to the, the children of Israel. Well, what Matthew does with that is he says, well, even that statement about the people of Israel, that actually was really about what Jesus did. That Jesus actually fulfilled that. And so he reframes not in that one move, right? That one, It's like two or three verses in the book of Matthew. He not only reframes what Hosea is doing by delivering an incomplete prophecy, which wasn't even a prophecy of the future. He's now reframed the entire history of Israel as a prophetic communication from God mm. that is now fulfilled and culminated in the prophet who was promised to the people of Israel by Moses in Deuteronomy. So all of these passages about, you know, Moses says another will arise from up from among you who will be like you, who will be a prophet like no other, none who came before, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing the language, but there's this promise of this capital P prophet. Well, this capital P prophet is fulfilling all of the prophecy that came before him. Um, I'm, I'm still listening to the um, 10 minute Bible hour with Matt Whitman, which is a great podcast. You should totally check it out if you haven't. But he, early on in the book of Matthew, he talked about how um, there was this sort of like refrain in the Old Testament that was unfinished. So he uses the example of the little diddy dot, 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 dot. Like if you just stop, you go dot, 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 dot. There's like this, there's like this tension and anxiety that's built of not finishing the, not finishing the, the refrain. And what Christ does is he comes and he delivers those last two notes to the refrain that was unfinished in the Old Testament. So the prophecy of Isaiah, it seems pretty clear, but it also was unfinished, right? The prophecy in Psalm 22 seems pretty clear, but it was also unfinished. It wasn't accomplished. Um, Christ accomplishes it and all of a sudden it's finished. 
So the prophecy in the Old Testament, whether it was the prophecy that was recorded in Scripture or the verbal prophecy that we don't have records of, we, we have accounts that tell us there was oracular prophecy or verbal prophecy in the Old Testament that wasn't recorded. All of that was incomplete, and it was not until the prophet came and fulfilled that, made full those prophecies, that that prophecy was complete. So on the one level, the prophets happen because they, they point forward to what is coming. Because of who Christ is, he had to be the prophet uh, because he already was the prophet. So he couldn't, he couldn't become incarnate and not be what he already was. So even though the, the natures are distinct from each other, the son of God had to be incarnated as the son of God. That's what Luke is getting at when he says, um, you know, therefore he will be called the son of God. It's not just because he doesn't have a father. So I guess in a roundabout sense, God's his father. It's because he is the son of God. And so he must be incarnate as the son of God. And that's why the incarnation has to take place the way it is. So that we see that all of that functioning, that, that sort of mechanism is happening with the prophets too. That he had to be the prophet because he already was the prophet. The prophets point forward to that because that's just who he is and that's who they're testifying to. But the reverse is also true, that the prophets are this unfinished refrain. It's like this symphony that's, it's like this this song that's missing the harmony note and then all of a sudden the harmony note comes in at the you know in the chorus and it, it's robust and it's complete and the song is finished. Um, I think, I think that's probably getting at what that question is. Is it, It's Christ is who he is and he came and was who he was and there was no other way he was going to come. So the prophets have to point forward to that. But also the prophets are leaving us with this unfinished, and this is really, we'll talk about the, I mean, we'll probably have the same conversation when we get to priest and king. The priests were unfinished. The, the sacrifice, the whole sacrificial system left this unfinished business. The kings were a mess and there was always this pointing forward to the king who wasn't going to be a mess. Well, Christ fulfills those offices, and so that's why he had to be the prophet, to fulfill the prophecy, to fulfill the prophet, the prophethood that was present in the Old Testament in shadow. He now fulfills that and brings it to light the reality of what was testified, right. was prophesied. And we'll revisit this question as we go through the next two episodes. Right. But I think it might be helpful as we round out the conversation to talk a little bit about why there is a distinction, why it isn't just one amalgam of three sure. roles, but how this idea of prophet is different from priest and king. Yeah. Well, I think on, on one level, um, there's a, an element of positive law to that. And po so positive law is that God, there, there is the way things are, and there's a moral quality to the way things are. That's the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the universe has these moral standards that are baked into the baked into the reality of the universe. And then God adds some laws on top of that that are, they never contradict the moral law, but they're not they're not moral in nature, right? Um, they may reflect moral realities, but God can remove them and not be like changing morality. The prophethood, priesthood, and kingship in the Old Testament, um, although not in an absolute sense, but God in his infinite wisdom, maintained a division between those three offices in the Old Testament nation of Israel. Although the king sometimes was prophetic or spoke prophecy, um, Saul and, and David both did that. Um, although sometimes the king plays a priestly role in terms of intercession, we also see that some of the most grave consequences that come on Saul are a result of him kind of usurping the, the priestly role and offering sacrifice when he shouldn't. Um, we see, uh, who is it? It was one of the good kings, it might have been Josiah actually, but one of the good kings of Judah, he insists on offering incense. And the text actually seems to indicate he never actually did it. He just intended to, and the priest physically stopped him. But his intention to fulfill the role of priest 
resulted in God giving him leprosy for the rest of his life. So we see that God in his wisdom has seen fit to keep these roles separate. And I think part of that is because no one person could properly fulfill those three offices. Um, even David, who at times fulfills all three of those offices in, in a certain sense, in a roundabout way, um, he never does them all at once. There's never a prophetic priestly king moment where he's doing all three and that scene is okay. He only can fulfill one at a time or maybe sometimes two at a time in, in, in a sort of abstract sense. That, un in, that sort of unrealized reality that culminates and comes together in Christ is that same kind of thing. From the garden, people were longing for God, the, the king of the universe, right? In the garden, God was king. In the garden, God was the priest. I mean, Adam was the priest, but God was, God was the one who was receiving the priestly uh, intercession, right? I mean, we have to extrapolate a little bit, but Adam was fulfilling a priestly role of, of protecting the garden, but he was doing that because it was God's temple that he was protecting. Um, and, and then we also have God is the one communicating to them, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or communicating to them judgment. Adam was also serving those roles, right? And this is another element. Adam was also serving those roles. He communicated to Eve what the what the stipulations of the covenant of works were, not to eat of the tree of garden. Um, he was the one who was protecting the garden and working it in the priestly role. Presumably he was praying for his wife, which would be a priestly act as well. Um, he was to rule over the garden, to rule over the animals, to protect it. Those are all priestly things. Now, Christ not only fulfills the longing of the human condition for God to be those things, which was always the intention. But he also now comes as the second Adam to fulfill all of those. So a lot of times, and this is a fine impulse, when we want to answer this question, we look back to the Old Testament offices and we try to, and I did that. I mean, that was my first instinct. We try to look at how it is that Christ fulfills those offices in the Old Testament, primarily in the nation of Israel. But it goes farther back than that. The mediatorship of Christ is a function of him being the second Adam. We haven't even talked about second Adam eschatology and how that plays into Christology. That's a whole different episode. But he comes to fulfill the covenant of works. And part of the covenant of works was these priestly offices that Adam failed to fulfill. Right. Right. So all of the positive law that Adam was given in, in the garden were, you know, tend and guard the, guard the garden. Well, tend and guard the temple of God. Um, you know, cast out the enemies, this implied command to that he should have expelled the serpent, last kingship. Um, you know, the the priestly element we talked about, teaching to his wife and to subsequent generations, presumably in the garden, what God expects and what God's like, that's the prophetic. Well, Adam screwed all those things up. You know, if you take the view that Eve got the commandment wrong, which I don't take, but if you take that view, it's very likely or possible that if that's true, it's because Adam didn't teach her well. And if he did, he didn't correct her. Um, he didn't guard the garden. He didn't rule it properly. He didn't tend it. He didn't um, He didn't fulfill any of those offices. Well, Christ comes along to fulfill those obligations to the covenant of work and what those offices in the covenant of work would have been to fulfill that on our behalf and then communicate the blessings of those fulfilled offices to us. So it's multifactorial. It's, it's multifaceted. But it, it's all of what Christ is as mediator culminates in these three offices. So you can tie any of the work that Christ does as mediator to one or more or all three of these. And because, because humans could never fulfill this, this is another part of it, is that in order to be a perfectly righteous man, Christ had to have the Holy Spirit above measure, right? It wasn't just that 
he um, he lacked a sin nature. He also depended on the Holy Spirit. He depended on God in order to fulfill his obligations to the covenant of works. That is part of why it had to be Christ to do it, because he was the one as the God-man who could properly depend on God to do that. And now he communicates that to us and will one day glorify us and give us that capacity, that, that benefit of his ministry. Right on. Well, there's more to come on that, right? There is. This is just the beginning. Is there anything else you want to add? I don't think there's anything else I can add. <laughs> my, my voice is going. This might be the longest actual recording session we've had because of the it's true. the duplex nature of it here. Yeah, I think so. Duplex is right. So how can people connect with us? Yeah, so we uh, we have a website that is not super up to date. There's a lot of stuff on there about social media <laughs> that we just don't do anymore. Uh, but you can check out our website. There's a little link in the top corner that says Join the Brotherhood. You can email us. You can call us and leave a voicemail. We, we try to do question casts once in a while. We're hoping to get one of those together in the future sometime. Um, you could also join our Telegram chat, which is uh, t.me slash reformbrotherhood. Uh, we've got you know about 100 people in there, some real active people who are constantly asking great questions that lead into great great conversations. Um, people are praying for each other. We're working through issues. We've got a book club going. Um, and then you can also uh, check us out on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash reformbrotherhood. And if you, after listening to the show, feel like this is something you want to support, we're committed to this always being free, so we're never going to charge for the show. But the reason in large part that we can do that is that there are generous brothers and sisters who, after they've fulfilled their obligation to their local church and taking care of their own personal finances, have seen fit to use some of their abundance to help continue what's going on with the show. So check it out. Don't feel obligated to give. If you if you want to, you can do it through Patreon. Um, it's, it's a good way to give, and, and that way we make sure that the, the funds are going to where they need to go. And then lastly, I mean, we don't ask for this very often, but I would say pray for us. Um, you know, this is a this is a lowercase m ministry. We're pretty clear that we don't think this is any sort of like formal ministry, but um, we are, you know, we are talking and teaching theology. We're talking about right. the things of God and and um, that that always benefits from people praying for us, whether it's to pray for us to have humility and to, to be wise about what we say or don't say, um, or to pray for us to be protected from spiritual attack or physical attack. I mean, not like getting beat up, but like people trolling us on the internet or, or whatever. Um, pray for us because it's 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 important. And we, we pray for you guys. We pray for our listeners too. So I think those are the best ways to get a hold of us. Um, yeah, you can also buy some cool stuff. We got cool T-shirts. <laughs> I always get locked in this cycle where I keep trying to like keep land it going. the plane and I just can't. So keep it going. Well, just, I think yeah. ending on prayer is the right yes. place to end. So just so. everything I said about buying merch, just take that back. Yes, prayer. Until yes. next time, then honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.